0: From WSNC on the campus of Winston-Salem State University, I'm Byron Williams, and this is The Public Morality. On today's Public Morality, we'll speak with Bill Leonard, church historian from Wake Forest University School of Divinity, about religious liberty. And after that, Chris Skrull will join us from the LGBT Democrats of Guilford County to discuss North Carolina's Senate Bill 2. That's next. On the public morality. What is religious liberty? What was its original intent? How is it used today? And are the two the same? Joining me to discuss religious liberty and its contemporary application is Bill Leonard. Professor Leonard teaches church history at Wake Forest University School of Divinity. Professor Leonard, welcome to the public morality.
1: Thank you very much.
0: How do you define religious liberty?
1: I probably uh reflect on the meaning of religious liberty from my uh Baptist heritage. I am uh something of a separationist uh, among the Baptists. That is that um, religious liberty begins with the individual's decision on the basis of conscience to follow or uh ignore a particular religious identity uh in in one's life and that that choice and that identity should not be uh, overpowered or inhibited, if at all possible, um, by religious establishments, whether that be uh, a state establishment that has uh, dictated a uh, privileged religion or by uh, religious communities that claim particular privilege over uh, others. So that it grows out of conscience and a freedom to um, express that religion as one chooses uh, uninhibited from uh, the implicit or explicit establishments uh, in the state and perhaps even, uh, I think, in the culture.
0: Both liberals and conservatives see religious liberty as a bedrock of our constitutional freedoms, yet they reach very different conclusions as to what that actually means. Why is that?
1: Um, as a historian uh, and uh, an academic, I tend to think uh, to look at uh, certain categories and to say that, generally speaking, uh, liberals tend to be separationists. That is, they draw distinct lines between uh, the state and the individual conscience or between religious liberty uh, issues and uh, state interference and, and often speak of. Uh, and this is a con- this has become a fascinatingly controversial term, uh, the separation of church and state that each should have their individual roles and places in the overarching culture, and at least as much as possible, uh, not intersect, particularly where uh, the state inhibits or seeks to inhibit implicitly or explicitly um, the religious liberty of individuals or groups. So it's a separationist, a a pretty strong separationist view. Conservatives these days, it seems to me, tend to promote uh, what they would call an accommodationist view in which uh, religious liberty is affirmed and uh, advocated and where the government, rather than seem Indifferent or aggressively uh, distanced from religion would accommodate religion uh, in certain ways that uh, encourage it in in the culture both as a source of uh, value and uh, a kind of centerpiece uh, in terms of identity and and morality and the like, but also uh, without what what seems to be a An indifferent or even antagonistic response to um, uh, religious freedom. I I think also increasingly um, liberals continue to oppose what they see as uh, or to challenge uh, the implicit religious establishment, uh, and we'll talk about this more in a moment, but uh, of a kind of privileged uh, Protestantism or a privileged uh, Christian orientation. And uh, the conservatives. Uh, tend to see uh that or to suggest that secularism has become the new religious establishment and that it is interfering with religious identity and and uh conscience uh here and here and there and so that their their separationism is to um, respond to uh or accommodationism is to respond to the implicit secular quote religion uh that is increasingly, from their view, uh, evident in the state.
0: Given the initial view that you articulated between liberals and conservatives as it relates to religious liberty, is it fair to suggest that conservatives may be in fear of the liberal perspective?
1: Oh, I think so, in in that uh, they often resist the idea uh, that religious privilege is something that they now have and and see themselves less as a, quote, moral or religious majority as uh, a kind of put upon a religious minority. And so in, in, with those two definitions, really, the accommodationist and the separationist, and this understanding of um, a, a, an implicit religious establishment evident in traditional Protestant uh, cultural, engage, cultural privilege uh, over against the increasing privileging of the secular. And and that means they they apply their interpretation of religious liberty, the two groups, uh, often very differently and in ways that may contradict each other.
0: Calling on your background as a church historian, can my claim to religious liberty have an adverse effect on a third party?
1: Uh, could, you give, could you give me an example of what you're you know, be thinking about?
0: Can I deny a service like Kim Davis, the clerk in Kentucky, who did not believe In gay marriage based on her religious beliefs so that the third party in this case being gays and lesbians are denied a service. When has that been part of
1: religious liberties? Is that a new phenomenon in our history? Uh, no, I think that, I think that's been there in, in different ways. I think, think what you described is, uh, a, a very strong, uh, situation, uh, a a growing controversy that we have now uh, regarding the effects of uh, a word we haven't used yet, and I'm surprised I haven't used it, uh, and that is the impact of pluralism. And that is um, as, well, I mean, a diversity, in terms of religious pluralism, I mean, a diversity of religious voices uh, that uh, are increasing, are, are outside certain, Religious norms in particular regions, uh, cultures, or identities, and um, so um, and and uh, and and who test religious liberty uh, from their perspective over against what may be the uh, the prevailing or privileged religious groups or identities. Uh, of the moment in a particular place and and i I want to go into some details about that because um, and this is in response to your question of is the is the third party issue new for us and and my point would be that from the colonial period um, Americans have struggled with this question of religious liberty. And even from the constitutional period, I have often said it this way. Americans, through the Constitution, uh, give religious liberty to all citizens, but, but consistently give it grudgingly. Uh, in the colonial period, uh, Puritans would hang were hanging Quakers on Boston Common and uh, exiling Baptists uh, out of the colonies. Uh, they were shooting, there were, there were Protestants shooting Catholics on the streets of Louisville in 1850 on Bloody Monday, Louisville, Kentucky, and, uh, Protestants shooting Mormons on the streets of Nauvoo, Illinois in 1845 when Joseph Smith was shot to death. Uh, when Catholics got here, uh, they were tolerated when they, as long as they were in the minority. But when they uh, came in huge numbers, in from let's say the 1820s into the late 19th century, uh, there was a huge anti-Catholic, anti, uh, and nativist backlash against first the Western European Catholics who came, and then the Eastern European Catholics who came. and And churches were burned, and there were huge uh, there was huge conflict over having Catholics, and later when Jews came, particularly to urban areas. So, so, and, and then we know that by the in the 1950s, uh, when when Jehovah's Witnesses uh, and Christian Science folks uh, appear, uh, Christian Science somewhat earlier, uh, there was huge conflict with them and their response to uh, the government, often uh, relative to uh, issues of. Sales and services so so we've tended to talk a good game, but to give religious liberty grudgingly and often to allow uh, to to refuse to allow uh, people to come right in and uh, bring their religion with them and and as the difference now is um, as long as Protestantism has an implicit or explicit privilege, particularly in the American south um, it it is able to maintain that culture privilege. But what has happened uh, in the latter part of the 20th and into the 21st century is pluralism, religious pluralism, has found its way into almost every nook and cranny of the culture, meaning that even the small towns in countries now have uh, Hindu, Buddhist, uh, Muslim, Persons who are exercising their role and Jewish persons uh, who are exercising their role in in culture, and also uh, a growing number, as we know, of what is sometimes called the nuns n o n e s or the nuns uh, uh, who have increasingly, in in survey after survey, particularly in the last seven to eight years. Uh, identify themselves as distancing themselves from religion that 's a kind of pluralism of religious or ant- or, or non religious identity that is is putting this particular kind of pressure uh, on on uh, certain elements of religious liberty uh, in the culture and and so you often hear voices uh, that were at one time raised against uh, the incorrectness and the uh, Social difficulties of Quakers and Baptists and Catholics and Jews and uh, Mormons and Jehovah's Witnesses that now are uh, particularly focused on uh, either atheists uh, or uh, Muslims, and and that's what's that's what's causing this identity. And and then you're now that, all of that is a long way to say when you ask about the third party, uh, my thought was uh, when increasingly in our culture, when religious liberty has an adverse effect on a third party, uh, we tend to go to the courts and to ask them to rule on where the boundaries are between one individual's religious liberty and what you have uh, noted as a a third party, somebody else's, if not religious liberty, somebody else's rights.
0: You just brought up the P word in your answer, or a plea word, uh, I should say, pluralism in your answer. But I want to touch on another P word that you also use, which is privilege. What is Protestant privilege?
1: I could make a case as a historian not that America began as a Christian nation in terms of majority religion, but that it began as a Protestant nation, and that at almost every turn in uh, all of the Thirteen colonies, except uh, Maryland, Protestantism was the uh, pretty much often explicit uh, religious establishment. Um, and whether that was Puritanism in the East and Anglicanism in the South. And even uh, the Catholic colony uh, of Maryland uh, had such difficulty early on getting Catholic colonists to come that they opened the door to uh, those who uh, would affirm a belief in the Trinity and in Jesus, they could be admitted to own land and, and live in uh, Maryland. And, and, but underneath all that was uh, an implicit Protestant identity and privilege that influenced uh, all kinds of, of uh, social contacts, And practices uh, so that when the Catholics got here in large numbers, they realized if we don't start parochial schools to train our own children and we send them to uh, the public schools, uh, they will be raised in Protestant academies. I just taught a a weekend course last week on the Scopes monkey trial in Dayton, Tennessee, and one of the often uh, overlooked issues uh, of that trial of whether or not uh, Darwinism, could uh, evolution could be taught in the Tennessee public schools was that um, at that point in time, uh, one of the reasons that was so uh, much a matter of concern for uh, William Jennings Bryan and, and Protestant families was that it would undermine the role of the Bible in the public schools, that it would call into question the, the daily reading of, of a biblical text by undermining the creation stories, and and we forget that in 1925 uh, those schools were, um, and this and this was by the way a major point that William James Bryan made. Uh, they were training grounds for uh, Protestant young people, and and increasingly as there have been changes in the larger culture, uh, that Protestant privilege in many places in the country, has been uh, changing as a result of pluralism, as a result of a growing number of uh, persons who move into the culture who do not uh, carry Protestantism with them. And so we've reached a point in this part of the 21st century when we're really witnessing uh, the the decline, if not the uh, loss of uh, Protestant privilege, and that 's part of what 's shaping this reaction, I think, and why uh, the the dialogue moves so quickly in the public square to uh, we're no longer a Christian nation and we always were and uh, that's that uh, sort of disagreement and uh, raising issues of uh, cultural cultural and religious identity.
0: Why do you think this is a debate, according to the ACLU eighty one percent of Americans uh, believe that laws enacted should not allow companies or institutions to use religious beliefs to decide whether or not to offer services to some people and not to others
1: uh, I think it I think it's an outgrowth of what we've just been talking about, and that is uh, when an implicit Protestant, Protestantism was uh, accepted as the normative way of uh, not simply identifying religious identity, but perpetuating uh, moral, spiritual, uh, legal uh, actions in the larger culture, then the norm uh, was essentially uh, a Protestant one implicitly. And by the way, let me put a parenthesis here and say, uh, my friend, the great uh, Lutheran historian Martin Marty, uh, has pretty well documented that the term judeo-christian nation was not used until the late the very late 19th century in America and and so that term itself illustrates the evolution of uh, cultural recognition that Catholics and Jews were here to stay and And that really makes my point well, and then I remember having heard this was several years ago an n p r uh broadcast in which uh the reporter referred to the u s as a judeo Christian-Muslim nation, or you sometimes hear people talk about America as uh, the as held together by the Abrahamic faiths, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. which again illustrates just that language. Whether whether it's controversial or not is not the point here. Just that language illustrates the changing uh, vocabulary of pluralism uh, in the country.
0: Could you define that Abrahamic tradition for our listeners?
1: Abrahamic faith, meaning. Um, uh Judaism Christianity and Islam those three religions that would trace pieces of their heritage to Abraham uh and and the story of Abraham with um and the development of the the peoples that came from him and his families so um uh, i think that's I think that's where we are and and therefore we're we're now in this, sort of this last this this ultimate stage of deciding uh how Protestantism relates to the changing realities of multiple religions no religions and uh and Protestantism's role in a culture where at least implicitly Uh, Its values have been seen as somewhat normative, and that's why we, I think, continue to hear uh, we are a Christian nation and here's why. But I'm going to go back to where you started in this uh, conversation the questions. And that is, from my perspective, I'll, I'll agree with Roger Williams, that there are no Christian nations. There are only Christian people bound to Christ, if we talk from a Christian perspective, mm-hmm. bound to Christ, not by citizenship but by faith. So there were always people, almost always, even from the colonial period, who who held a dissenting view of this kind of explicit or implicit religious uh, establishmentarianism in in the culture, and that's another word you and I probably needed to get on the table: uh, pluralism, uh, privilege, and dissent. Yeah. Because because uh, underneath underneath religious liberty is. Um,
0: Are you saying that one must give up their religious liberty when they enter in the marketplace?
1: Your point's extremely well. Your, your question's very important, and that is. Uh, one of the, one of the great uh, and one of the wonderful and frightening realities of religious liberty is that every religious group has the right to be as welcoming and as obnoxious as they choose in the public square, and then people have to sort out uh, how they will respond to to that. and And I've been convinced for several years now. Mainly by watching the Baptists in the public square, uh, that uh, the one of the one of the things that I think a lot of Christian groups, left and right of center, don't always recognize is that what sounds like often what often sounds like conviction, uh, and and orthodoxy and theological certainty in one's religious communion can in a pluralistic society such as our own sound like bigotry in the public square and and this is an important point because something else we haven't said yet is that religious liberty also means that all religion is voluntary and religious institutions who want to grow and expand their uh, evangelistic influence and their understanding of religion have to convince people to choose their groups because there's no state uh, enforcement of religious uh, commitment or participation. And and right now, I think we're in one of these phases where, uh, and you could make a case uh, on both the left and the right, the sense of religious conviction has become so strong uh, 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 that in making the case in the public square, there's a growing number of people who say, a pox on both your houses. Um, and uh you talk a good game of uh we love everyone we follow the golden rule we follow the beatitudes etc i'm speaking here of christians uh but then but then when you show up and you don't conform uh we can be as mean as we want to and and and, uh, whether whether the christians actually are acting like that that's often the way they're perceived by their rhetoric or their particular actions and uh I think that's part of the crisis of both uh, religious identity and and religious liberty, rather, and the growth of the nuns.
0: The North Carolina legislature passed Senate Bill 2, which allows magistrates and clerks to recuse themselves from
1: all marriages due to religious objections. How does this reflect religious liberty? Well, for that legislation and the case in Kentucky that you referenced early, the phrase that keeps being used by the people who support those approaches is the phrase we used early in this conversation. This is an accommodationist principle, that it ought to be possible in these kinds of uh, divisive cultural questions uh, for people to continue to to stay in the work that they're doing uh, and be accommodated in some way where um, uh, either the, the uh, particular uh, location, uh, county or whatever, uh, decides to do no marriage because they have, ha- can't find anybody uh, in those offices who will sign off on them. So they don't do, uh, for example, heterosexual or homosexual uh, couple marriages. Uh, or uh, that they will, as in the case in Kentucky apparently, edit the marriage license, so that no one person is identified, and anybody in the office who chooses to do so can sign those um, uh, those documents. And um, I, I think that's that's a reflection of what we were calling the more conservative accommodationist response. And the, but my question for that is: once you start this, the, uh, often the right talks about the slippery slope of all of these policies. But I think, uh, this is, a, this is a right-wing slippery slope, it seems to me. And that is, uh, what do you do when, when it's simply not the marriage issue, uh, but, but other moral issues relative to other things that the state, uh, licenses? Uh, I've, I've, and, and I have to tell you, I, I think what we're seeing in, in the marriage cases is what I, as a historian, would call selective biblical literalism. And, and my, my question is, if, if one particular response to, uh, a particular uh, sense of scripture relative to uh, same-sex couples is normative, then why didn't those clerks do the same thing when people came to, to get marriage licenses who were divorced and remarrying? Because Jesus is extremely specific uh, about what happens when divorced couples remarry. Mm-hmm. And he, in, I think it's in Matthew's Gospel, he only gives what is sometimes called the uh, – uh, adultery escape clause, which is there's no, you cannot get it Christians cannot get a divorce uh, except for adultery. And in, in the other gospels, that's not even given as an option. Uh, and and specifically says when you, um, when a, a a divorced person remarries, uh, that person, that couple commits adultery. So uh, if you, if you're going to do, if you're going to do that about one Uh, conviction on the basis of a very literal reading of scripture why didn't you do it earlier can can you have it both ways can you claim to be okay i'm i'm my conscience is strong about this which is a biblical doctrine but it's not strong about that you may have seen a letter to the editor uh, i think saturday or sunday in our uh, local winston-salem journal where the writer began by saying uh by asserting if Kim Davis had been refusing to issue uh, gun licenses, he doubted that Mike Huckabee would have shown up uh, with her. And and that's my point. Uh, once you start this, then where would public employees uh, draw the line as to other kinds of licenses and as to whether – I mean, I, I would have hoped Ms. D- Ms. Davis would have been is now asking about the divorce nature of couple she's marrying. If she's if she's going to have the conscience, uh, uh, her conscience on marriage and scripture.
0: If Kim Davis took on the issue of divorce, as you suggest, wouldn't she have to recuse herself?
1: I think uh, that's why in in many cases. A left and right of center, across the board, we all read scripture selectively. We mm-hmm. all do, and and where we choose, but religious liberty gives us the right to draw the line where we think we must, and then when we do that, everybody everybody gets to ask everybody that chooses to gets to ask. Well, if you drew the line there, why didn't you draw it somewhere else? And and she had, uh, t- to my knowledge, I don't think she's been asked that. And I wish her pastor uh, had had talked that. Uh, over with her uh beforehand, not necessarily to discourage her, but to raise the biblical um, issue uh with her. The other thing I don't think's been said I'm not picking on her, but i think I think we've missed the fact that uh one of the uh, reasons that conscience is often so dangerous for all of us is we have we can't have it all we have to decide if i'm going to follow according to conscience it may take me to jail it may make me lose my job it may make me alienate my friends and family and uh and so this whole issue of the cost of conscience is uh i think very important and uh, in in many of these cases people want to keep their jobs when they can't do them but they don't want to give up. And I think that's extremely important about Ms. Davis, because I don't think anybody's mentioned uh, her family owns that magistrate office. Her mother was uh, in that job for 37 years. Mm. I think it's very difficult. Oh, yes. It's very difficult for her to give up the family business. Her son works in the office. So I, I think uh, all of us read scripture and claim conscience within a particular personal, regional, cultural, familial context that shapes the way we apply that for ourselves.
0: So what I hear you saying is that religious liberty does not render one free of consequence.
1: Yes. Uh, uh, yes, and and that's the that's the matter of that's the matter of conscience and the thing that tests all of us when we decide to take that stand uh, in the church. Some people exercise that in the in the church or in the public square. Exactly right. In the
0: final analysis, are, aren't these issues cyclical?
1: Yes, I think they're cyclical, and I think, and and I'm somewhat sympathetic with this, I have to say, Uh, this accommodationist issue relative to the two cases we've talked about may be uh, an intermediate step on the way to um, uh, other kinds of responses. And I'll I'll give you what's my favorite example these days. When I began teaching uh, at the Baptist Seminary in Louisville, Kentucky, 40 years ago, the issue was divorce and if you were divorced they would not admit you and if you got a divorce while you were a student they would uh, ask you to take at least a semester's leave of absence and go to counseling and would only let you back in after they got a particular kind of certification from the counselor and the prevailing view was a baptist will never hire divorced ministers and and that was the huge that was the huge debate uh and and I remember, again, my friend Martin Marty uh, said to me when, when I first met him, uh, Baptists will never change their view on divorce until the deacons' daughters get them. And that's sort of what I think is taking shape in the culture. when As these questions work their way into families, uh, whether that's uh, Christians marrying Jews, B- Buddhists, Muslims, Hindus, Catholic, Mormons, uh, Protestants, I mean marrying them, um, then families have to look at these questions in a different way uh, because and, – and in some cases, the, the young people who uh, take these stands, who get divorces, who uh, marry uh, across interfaith lines are written out of their families. But increasingly, pluralism has found its way into, into those cultures uh, as well, and uh, uh, that's why I think – what we're going through now may be an intermediate step on the way to, to responding to these issues, which doesn't mean that there won't be people who will never accept some of these cultural changes. Uh, there are people who who have never accepted the Supreme Court decision to um, make changes on whether schools could have prescribed prayers over the PA system, etc. cetera. Uh, so that's not to say that that People should sacrifice their convictions over this. It just seems to me these issues change uh, with time, and, and other issues will become often the, the hot-button issues uh, as we confront new changes in the culture.
0: Professor Leonard, I want to thank you for being on the public morality. Coming up, religious liberty in North Carolina's Senate Bill 2. Continuing our conversation on religious liberty, I want to turn our attention to North Carolina's Senate Bill 2. Senate Bill 2 allows magistrates and clerks to accuse themselves from all marriages due to religious objections. It became law when the North Carolina legislature overrode the veto of Governor Pat McCrory. Joining me to discuss Senate Bill 2 and its implications is Christopher Skrull. Skrull was an organizer and finance director for state and federal-level campaigns. Most recently... He was Director of Economic Development for former U.S. Senator Kay Hagan. He was a founding member of the LGBT Democrats of North Carolina. Chris scrow welcome to the Public Morality. Thank you for having me. Well, let's start uh, with what exactly is contained in SB2?
2: So uh, the General Assembly signed uh, earlier, or passed earlier this year Senate Bill 2, uh, the magistrate's recusal bill, Governor McCrory uh, vetoed that legislation because it was so problematic, um, but uh, his veto was overridden by uh, three-fifths majorities in both chambers. So uh, the legislation says that um, that magistrates, who are the only uh, individuals who can officiate a civil marriage uh, ceremony in North Carolina, and assistant registers of deeds, who are the ones who issue civil marriage uh, licenses, uh, can opt out of performing all uh, marriages for periods of six months at a time based on uh, their religious convictions. So um, what the legislation does in practice is it means that at a magistrate, whether they're opposed to same-sex marriage, or interfaith marriage or interracial marriage or any other type of marriage that, um, that public taxpayers could seek as a civil service. Um, it says that those, uh, these public servants can opt out of, uh, of doing that part of their job for six months at a time. So they don't lose any compensation. Uh, it, it doesn't kind of negatively impact them, but they can make this decision based on, any religious belief. It's not just about their posture towards same-sex marriage.
0: And and from your perspective, what do you see as the impact of this legislation?
2: The impact of the legislation is is a couple fold. Um, One, it's a dangerous precedent. So um, public servants are just that. They're they're, they're public servants. They serve all of the public. Uh, It's it's not fair uh, for people in those positions to be able to pick and choose which parts of their job they're going to do or not do. Um, it's problematic, obviously, for the LGBT community, not just in terms of the impact, which is um, that it can potentially make getting uh, a marriage license or um, having a, uh, your marriage officiated harder um, and, and more difficult to access, uh, but also the debate that occurred around the bill itself, um, was really pretty nasty, and there was some targeted language that came from the House and Senate floor uh, that, uh, against the LGBT community, the gay and transgender community in North Carolina. Um, above and beyond that, again, because it, it its intent is clear, which is to target the LGBT community, but it's broadly written <laughs> so that it just says that folks, uh, that these public officials, can opt out of all marriages. So what we said it was going to do and what it has started to do is make, uh, m- make these counties services. These are, you know, these are folks who operate at the, at the county level of government, uh, cause these county services harder to access for everyone. So by telling, uh, you know, uh, certain elected officials that they can opt out of those parts of their job, you make it so that, uh, in smaller counties, especially, uh, there may not be a magistrate or an assistant register of deeds who has not opted out of marriage. And so we've actually seen this in McDowell County now where all four magistrates have said that they are not going to uh, to, to participate in officiating marriages. So what's happened uh, is that that county now only offers access to marriage services 10 hours a week instead of during all normal business hours. And they're having to, Uh, We are paying as taxpayers for magistrates to come in from neighboring Rutherford County to offer that service because everybody has refused to do their job in McDowell County. So um, there there are a number of of pretty serious impacts um, to both the LGBT community and to just a broader taxpaying North Carolina base.
0: I understand, as you stated, that most people who read this legislation do see it as a direct attack on the LGBT community. And with that said, uh, Governor McCrory, who by his own account is, is no fan of same-sex marriage, vetoed this bill. Talk, talk to me why um, the governor saw fit to veto this
1: legislation.
2: The, the governor vetoed it because uh, it, it, it's, it set a, a terrible precedent, like I said, um, in allowing public officials to opt out of portions of their job and um, he made it pretty clear that he didn't think that that was acceptable. That regardless of his posture towards same-sex marriage, the law is the law, and that that became law after the Fourth Circuit ruling and a subsequent ruling here in North Carolina, and that those public officials were bound by the law. Um, and I, I think that he also probably vetoed it because he thought that it was it, it was really uh, problematic. Again, beyond the LGBT community, that. Uh, it, we, we have already had this conversation in the 1970s when uh, an interracial couple uh, was refused by a magistrate in Forsyth County um, who said that uh, he religiously objected to an, an interracial couple being married and he would not officiate their marriage. So I think that Governor McCrory, uh both understood the, the dangerous impact of, of allowing uh, public officials to opt out. And also uh realized that, you know, this is this is this bill, while targeted at LGBT people, also impacts uh lots of other folks.
0: The argument is that this that Senate Bill two ensures religious liberty. How does it do that?
2: I, I don't think it does. Uh I am I'm a Catholic American and I'm a, a, a firm believer uh in in freedom of religion. That's that's not what this law is about. <laughs> uh, this law w- targeted public officials who who do who have committed and sworn to do a specific job, and who are saying that they refuse to do that job. So I don't think that it ensures uh, religious liberty. Religious liberty would it is and would be saying uh, that you know denomination denomination heads in their place of worship don't have to officiate a marriage service if it is not within their religion. Of course, that is the kind of religious freedom, that is religious freedom, and that's what we stand by. People are free in 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 their lives to practice their religion. However, this is a very different thing. This is uh, specifically in the public sphere. We're talking about civil marriage right here. We're not talking about the institution of religious marriage, and we're talking about people who were specifically hired to do that job and who are saying that they can't do that job. So I don't think it does anything to, to ensure or protect religious liberties. I think it's a, it, it puts the state on a slippery slope, um, to allowing people to opt out of doing their jobs for whatever reason. Uh, their people's religious liberties are completely intact, uh, in their freedom to practice their religion and to, uh, uh, participate in, in, in houses of worship and for houses of worship to say they will or will not conduct same-sex marriages. But that's not what Senate Bill does.
0: I, I think the key thing you just said in, in that very eloquent answer is the fact that we are, as all marriages are to some degree, civil marriage. Uh, the religious part is something that comes on, you add on if you so choose, but we're talking about civil, uh, uh, a civil, civil service. Am I, am I not, right?
2: That's correct, and the way that marriage works in the state of North Carolina, um, you have to have a license from uh, from the county, from the Register of Deeds, and you have to have an officiated service. So that license does not actually take effect until somebody officiates your marriage. That can be a faith leader. If it's not a faith leader, it has to be a civil magistrate. So this is literally the only option if you're trying to go a civil route for a completely civil marriage. And that's why I think this is so offensive to me is we there really are distinct and uh, this is a really distinct place where we're just talking about civil marriage. The, the, the legislation around marriage is, is specifically written that way so that people can't have the option of having a religious service that, that completes their marriage license outside of this system. But if you're trying to, if you're trying to have a civil marriage, as many people do, you have to have a magistrate officiate. So while I understand that there are lots of magistrates who in their day jobs are ministers, they've actively decided to get involved in the business of civil marriage, and we're not talking about what they do with their house of worship anymore.
1: All right.
0: Talk, talk to me for a moment, you know, for, for those who um, have the privilege of not having to worry about something like SB2. Talk to me about how this impacts any given couple, like for whatever reason you have a magistrate who whose uh religious belief says they cannot do uh ceremony they can't do uh said ceremony how does that impact a couple what what does that really do
2: well you know what what I know that it does in places like mcDowell county you know if 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 i am if if i were uh You know, a resident in McDowell County, and this had been a couple of months back before I'm, I'm, I'm now married to my husband. Um, when we were looking to, to actually bring, bring marriage now legal to our 10 year relationship and we lived in McDowell County, I'm sure that I would think twice about trying to go to my county office where people stood up pretty vocally and said, I don't want to officiate your, your wedding. So it makes, uh, it makes access to that service really difficult. It also is, is, is demeaning and hurtful. And, 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 and I really don't think that that can be underestimated. We're not just talking about some hurt feelings. We're talking about a community that has been discriminated against for, uh, decades and it, really, uh, just the public debate that has come from, um, you know, the, the, the extreme far right around this issue. Uh, has been really harmful, I think, to the psyche of couples across the state. It it demeans, regardless of whether they go to a welcoming faith community and have their marriage officiated there, or if they do live in a, a county where, where they have supportive magistrates or not, regardless of any of that, it really demeans, I think, all of our marriages, that the state has attacked uh, what is now, what the Supreme Court has said is now the law of the entire country, and that's uh, that same-sex marriage is, is completely equal in every way to opposite-sex marriage. And this is an, an attack on that, and that's an attack on the psyche of same-sex couples across the state.
0: Who, who drove this legislation? And uh, do you have any idea who? what their ultimate aim was?
2: Yeah, well, Phil Berger primarily drove it. the president of the Senate, uh, along with Representative uh, Jackson in the House. Uh, but, you know, I think, I think what, what's one of the things that's most disappointing here to me is that really the state, as in the country, but, but the state as well, are moving pretty quickly on a trajectory of strong acceptance for not just same-sex marriage but a host of issues related to LGBT North Carolinians. I really think that this is an unfortunate throwback, and, and frankly, people like Tammy Fitzgerald and the so-called uh, North Carolina uh, Values Coalition drove an extreme agenda, uh, through, you know, relationships with, uh, with, with House and Senate leadership to get this passed. And I think that that the House and the Senate leadership really, uh, uh, misunderstands what the state of North Carolina wants and, and kind of where we are right now. Polling actually showed earlier on in that conversation that North Carolinians were opposed to Senate Bill 2. Um, so this is, this was not the will of the people, certainly. It wasn't the right thing to do, certainly. So I think a a couple of legislators, primarily Phil Berger, were listening to people who they, who they thought for political reasons, you know, they needed to listen to 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 win Republican primaries, really. And, and that those groups like North Carolina Family Values, uh, represent an ever decreasing percent of the population of this state.
0: Do you see um, any potential ramifications nationally, uh, especially in light of Kim Davis, the, uh, Northeast Kentucky um, County Clerk um, that that denied marriage license to LGBT couples until she was incarcerated uh, by Judge Bunning. Do you, do you see any that, that, that this might have uh, uh, an influence on, on other um, counties who haven't uh, or other states who haven't uh, accepted uh, that we're in the 21st century and the same-sex marriage is legal legal across well, the country?
2: Yeah, I so uh, I have. I do have 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 a concern there, um, and I I've, I've been having that conversation with um, my counterparts and at other state-based equality organizations, especially across the South. Um, that you know, frequently, when bad legislation hits in one in one state, uh, that you know, where special interests have driven that, they often will drive the same legislate. You know, they'll shop it to other conservative legislatures. So I am I am concerned that that could happen in the upcoming sessions in other southern states that um, that other states could look to pass similar legislation. Now my hope is that they'll see that that they'll see the problems that uh, SB two is already causing here in North Carolina. Um, they'll see you know the continued business backlash to legislation like Senate Bill two and take a pass on actually implementing uh, that kind of legislation. But I do think that there's the potential that uh, that, that other states, uh, not because it's what people want, <laughs> but because, uh, there, there are a lot of bad legislatures in this country that they will also look at a Senate Bill 2, uh, style piece of legislation. You,
0: you, you, you would think that the, uh, state, given where it consistently ranks, uh, with public education would spend more time working that out than, 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 than the Senate Bill 2. Uh, but I do, but I digress.
2: Um, hope. <laughs> do, you,
0: do you think, or do you foresee it, that Senate Bill 2 could end up in the Supreme, before the Supreme Court?
2: Uh, I do think that Senate Bill 2 will end up in court. Uh, I don't know, I don't know if, the exact timing on that, and I don't know what track it will take. Uh, so, so, you know, the, the, what that really, what that question really asks is, um, would it be a case uh, that is brought in state court or in federal court? Uh, and I, I don't know the answer to that yet. Uh, and, and obviously, that would that would dictate kind of where the progression of of how that case moved and, and potentially where it would move up to. So I, I don't know if it would ever make it to the the U.S. Supreme Court or the North Carolina Supreme Court, um, depending on lower court rulings. But I do anticipate that it will make it into court, and that will happen. yeah, I don't have a specific timeline, but I don't think it's going to be too terribly much longer. As um, you know, we have we have been working with uh, the ACLU of North Carolina and uh, Campaign for Southern Equality, and a handful of other organizations, as well as loving same-sex couples, to evaluate legal options here.
0: Yeah, I, I only raised that uh, mainly because of a of, uh, response you gave earlier. We're Well, you, you referenced the first amendment and then, and that clearly states that, um, it it prohibits, you know, respect, you know, making any laws respecting the establishment of religion and the prohibit the free exercise thereof. But, but you sort of have this sort of hybrid where public officials, uh, can now invoke their religious doctrine, not to carry out the law that they're paid to carry out. So that just seemed like that was pregnant for a lawsuit
2: yep that's that's absolutely the case there have been a couple of harvard law review articles out recently on just that matter um about the fact that you know that the state cannot establish a religion that the that the the first amendment protections um of religion uh also say that in order for religion to be protected it needs to uh uh, not not be (laughs) anything that's that state established and so we do we do have some concern here and uh that certainly is something that regardless of of which level of court that this get, that this is, uh, is litigated in um, that legal doctrine will 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 govern that conversation in litigation
0: well thank you chris crow i really want to thank you today for being on the public morality
2: absolutely thank you for having me
0: coming up my closing remarks Next time on The Public Morality, we begin our two-part series discussing Tanahisi Coates' tour de force book, Between the World and Me. Next time on The Public Morality. The Syrian refugee debate allows politicians, especially the remaining Republican presidential candidates, to conveniently commingle terrorism with illegal immigration as if 9-11 occurred by a number of hate-filled jihadists who risked their lives by entering the country by way of the Rio Grande. But that's not what happened. Not only did the 9-11 attackers arrive here legally, but the vast majority hailed from Saudi Arabia, which is an ostensible ally of the United States. It raises the question, when will we have a judicious immigration debate based on the facts? The facts that state the economic impact of immigration is a net plus for the American economy. The mobility factor of immigrants, especially undocumented, low-skilled workers, is also a net plus. There is no social safety net for those undocumented workers who remain in the economic shadows. There is no correlation between a finite set of jobs which results in someone losing their job to a low-skilled, undocumented worker. The problem lies in the fact that the immigration debate is not driven by facts, not at all, but instead by political pablum designed to cajole, coax, and titillate rather than inform. I don't have to tell you because you already know that is not the way to a more perfect union. The Public Morality welcomes your comments, questions, and suggestions for upcoming shows. To contact us, you can email at Byron B Y R O N Byron at publicmorality dot org. That's Byron at publicmorality dot org. That's our show for today. The public morality is produced by WSNC on the campus of Winston Salem State University. For all of us at the Public Morality, I'm Byron Williams. <laughs>